Good morning. Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, we'll be looking through Isaiah 9 verses 2 through 7 this morning to um, kind of wrap up our Advent series. I really appreciate the elders over the last several weeks sharing about peace with us. And we'll be looking at promise of peace. But I think you're going to notice at the end of verse 6, there's this series of names given to Jesus by the prophet Isaiah, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then lastly, Prince of Peace, and how those things actually need to be built on top of each other in order to reach this Prince of Peace title that he's given. But let me read those verses for us before we get started. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. My mom's favorite Christmas song is Silent Night, and it's translated in Chinese as well, and she would sing it in Chinese. I'm not going to do that. But um, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. And that song is just juxtaposed with our current sounds of today of war and protest, suffering, anger, disappointment, fear, all around the world, and it creates a lot of tension. It creates a lot of unease, and I personally haven't recalled another Christmas season where I felt a greater tension between what I usually feel this time of year and what's going on in the world. It's just the most I personally have felt ever before. And then there's this illusion of Christmas, and it's times like today that I think we need to actually look at this illusion and confront this with reality. And I think it's good for us to look at this reality and because we're living in it and not just look at this Christmas illusion and I might burst the bubble for some of you and I'm sorry to do that with you and your kids here this morning and Christmas tomorrow. But I think it's important, but the world in which this Christmas gospel first came was more of where we are today with this tension. When what we're experiencing today, based out of this kind of fairy tale, materialism, materialistic world that has made it out to be out there, you know, our our world has made it about gifts and decorations and family dinners and movies and vacations, which are all fine, as long as we haven't idolized those things. But the first Christmas didn't have those things, and it was riddled with hatred. 
and political unrest and altercation, alienation. And that's something I think we often forget this time of year because we're just focused on this cool, good stuff and lights and gifts and all these other things. And so our Advent theme this year is peace, and you wouldn't know that after my introduction. (laughs) But it would be naive for us to think that we're ever going to experience peace in this world. And each one of our elders in the previous weeks has touched on this, and I'm in agreement with them. Let me go back into our world history just for a little bit. You remember this phrase if you've studied U.S. history, especially military history. The war that will end war. Do you remember what that was in reference to? It's a phrase coined by a British author named H.G. Wells, and the belief was that World War I would create a new world order that would make future wars impossible. That was well over 100 years ago. Well over 100 years ago. And my question is, how have we done? Since World War I, there have been over 260 major wars in the world, including another world war. And if we are to include smaller wars, there have been over 100,000 wars since that time. And that's if the Wikipedia numbers are right, but you know, that's, that's that. But let's just go to the base of this and just say there's no doubt there have been more wars that have broken out since what was supposed to end all wars. And so I think it's foolish for us to think that we are going to live in this peaceful world when we can't resolve these sorts of things since World War I, which was supposed to end all wars. And if there was no war, let's just say there was no war, do we still have peace? And I would argue that no. And you wouldn't have to look much further than your own family. Right? Whether it's extended family or your own nuclear family or your workplace or your school. It's not like the absence of war suddenly makes all of these things peaceful. That there are still wars within households. And so it's the reason why the prophet Isaiah announced Emmanuel's arrival, God with us, Emmanuel, and he gives us these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And by the time we get to Prince of Peace, I think you're going to be able to see why those other three preceded Prince of Peace. In the context Isaiah gives us these great names of God is in the midst of very, very dark conflict. The entire book of Isaiah gives us a very dark picture of the human heart and the deliverer, the savior to come, is a picture of a greater deliverer than any human leader or any peacemaker could ever be. Isaiah, in the midst of this darkness, prophesies of the Lord Jesus as the words of Isaiah 9 are quoted in the context of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this light of the world who pierces the darkness and delivers us from it is spoken about in Matthew's gospel. It's spoken about in John's gospel. And all of the gospels share about Jesus, the Savior who is the deliverer of all things to all his people for all time. And Isaiah saw this vision, even though he wasn't able to live during it or after its fulfillment in Jesus, that we have been graciously able to experience. 
And even though Jesus delivered people from darkness over 2,000 years ago, we are living in still a, a pretty dark time. Even though we have his living word recording all that he has done for us, and yet there are still so many who don't believe this. And so this is what we need to deal with today, and this is the question all of us have for us today, is Jesus your deliverer? Isaiah wrote that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the one who has the exact wisdom we need in our dark human condition, that we are a conflict-ridden people who are walking in the dark, stumbling around with each other without light, and we're hurting each other in the process. And Jesus is the one who anchors us to his counsel, to his wisdom, to his guidance. You look at Psalm 23, very, very popular psalm, and it reads this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A beautiful psalm. The issue with it is, it's not true for everyone. Because you take a look at the very first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. So if the Lord is not your shepherd, this psalm is not for you. This is for those who know that the Lord is their shepherd. And without Jesus, you don't have his wisdom. You don't have his guidance. You don't have a way to navigate through this darkness that we're experiencing. And you have different ways of coping with darkness, but you're not delivered from it. You're just knowing how to live in it. And you're doing everything that falsely assures you that you don't need Jesus as your Savior because you're able to just cope with that. You're able to just kind of feel your way through things and that's just okay for you. And so therefore you just keep going forward in it. And this is the world we live in. And this is our human nature. We come up with every answer other than Jesus to address injustice and to address immorality but don't acknowledge that the darkness is actually us. We're the darkness. And we have all of these really, really great and good ideas. But they don't work because people can't execute on the good ideas. And there are so many things that are good in theory. But then you find that people are just greedy. And they're corrupt. And they're incapable of following through on that goodness that was initially birthed out of this great idea. They can't carry it through. Why is there no peace? Because of you. Because of me. We need Jesus, this wonderful counselor who provides this wisdom that we don't have. We need Jesus, the mighty God who has the power that we need. We, we look at the word mighty and we might think that this just pertains to power, but it's actually more than power. The word Isaiah uses here includes heroism. 
And you get a sense of this from verse 4 in Isaiah chapter 9. And it reads this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That the Lord saves his people in a heroic fashion as on the day of Midian. When was that day? So you have to look back into the story of Gideon. That's the story of Midian. And for those who don't know the story of Gideon, Gideon has 20,000 soldiers, and they're getting ready to go into battle, and God tells Gideon, that's too many. And so instructs Gideon, hey, send the ones that are scared, just send them home. So half of them go home. And so there are still 10,000 soldiers there, and God says, too many. Eventually, there are 300 soldiers left, and they are to take on the Midianite army. And they are armed with the most advanced weapons of all time. Clay pots and the lighting that goes inside of them and the shouting of their voices. That's what they have. Now, why does Isaiah bring up the day of Midian? Because he's pointing to the mighty God. He's not pointing to Gideon and his mighty army. He's pointing to the mighty God who saves his people who are vastly outnumbered by a way more technologically advanced army, who has much more powerful weapons. And if it is God that is the mighty one to deliver them out of those things that look so bleak, there's no way they're going to win this. Clay pots and your voices, you're going to win like that? Yes. You go to verse 6, it reads to us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And you look to this child and you're thinking, there's no wisdom, there's no might in a child. That is what adults impart to them. That is how they grow and mature and then they grow into these things, they gain these things. Yet it is through this child that we're delivered as Isaiah wrote this prophecy before the Greeks were in power. And I bring up the Greeks because the Greeks were the ones who greatly valued intellect. They greatly valued wisdom. You have all these really great Greek philosophers who have influenced our Western thought. And much of how we think in the Western world is greatly influenced by this Greek thinking. And it's also influenced by this idea of power, which... The Jews were more influenced by this power. You take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 22. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We think we're a lot wiser than we actually are. 
We think we are so much more powerful than we actually are. And because of this foolish perception of ourselves, we're missing out on how God works. That God works through weakness and frailty. And he proves this by bringing to us a Savior who is born and then dies on a cross. Now that second part of verse 6, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In the Gospels, there was only one thing written to be on Jesus' shoulders. It's the cross. That's where the power is found, in the weakness. Power is to set us free from that darkness and bondage is through that weakness. And the bondage delivers people from what's greater than a political bondage. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are in bondage politically. But then they're spiritually free. And we have people who are politically free, but they are in spiritual bondage. The latter are the ones who need a greater deliverance. They're the ones imprisoned to darkness without a savior, and there's nowhere to escape to. At least the politically oppressed can seek political asylum and they can move to another country. The spiritually oppressed can only turn to Jesus who through his weakness came to set us free from the power and guilt of sin. And so verse 6 tells us, For to us a child is born who provides to us wisdom in being the mighty counselor, who provides us power, the power of deliverance from this bondage, as mighty God, and who provides this love we desperately need as everlasting Father, that we're adopted into God's family. Our church has had the privilege of celebrating several adoptions here. And I know walking through them and going to court with them and just all the challenges and how long that process is and how much patience it requires and all the involvement of all this And it's a pretty accurate picture of the fathering grace of our Lord Jesus as we are adopted into God's family through him. And typically, children we've celebrated being adopted are are through our own counties. And and so these adoptive parents with their kids, it's it's through Alameda County and then going through that whole process. And, And sometimes there have been international adoptions. I'm trying to paint this picture for you. So we've had adoptions where the kids have been from Asia or from the African continent. And you can see those distances as opposed to just Alameda County. And what I want to help draw a picture is this everlasting father adopting at a really great distance beyond international lines. That this span is between holiness and darkness, sin. A distance that we could never close on our own. It's not a plane ride. It's not anything that we can go to. It's just nothing that we could ever close. A gap that can never be closed. Now there are some who would argue that we don't need a father. We don't need a father figure. That we're fine without those social constructs that we've created generations ago. Like those things are unnecessary. This is more than just a father figure. This is deeper than the social constructs. This is about being an image bearer. In Genesis 1, 
It's recorded that we're created by God in God's image. Genesis 1, starting verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Parents have children who bear their image. Now, maybe not mine. Thank goodness for that, that they look more like their mother. But sometimes that image is just unmistakable. I'm at the door, I'm greeting people, and they'll bring their kids, and like, this is my kid. No question about it. That kid looks exactly like you. And I had this neighbor that I couldn't even see his face, but he walks just like his dad. And the posture and the gait and everything is just like his dad. Like, it's that image. Or siblings. Again, my daughters don't look anything alike. It's the most strange thing. But you have siblings that come, and you can tell they're all part of the same family. It's unmistakable. Yeah, you guys are siblings. There's a likeness. The Bible begins by assuring us that we are made in the image of God. We are made to know him as our father, but not everyone does. Now, by nature, we don't know God. And in fact, there are some who don't want to know God, and they do everything they can do to further themselves from him. And it's just like teenagers. I have two of them right now. No, I have three. Wow. I have three of them right now. And the fourth is three years away. The 10-year-old still likes to walk with me and hold my hand and go through the mall. My other ones are gone. They're, they're gone. They want to go to Sephora or they want to go to other places, which I'm more than happy to go with them, and they don't want me to go there until I have to pay. But <laughs> that's, that's just how it is. They, they don't want to be seen with me. They want to go off on their own. That's a lot of people today. That's... Even though they bear my image, or maybe not, maybe their mom's image, but they're trying to distance themselves, and it's just like a lot of people today, you're an image bearer of God, but you're just trying to distance yourself as much as you can from him, because maybe there's some shame around it, like you don't like that your dad wears a green jacket and flip-flops or something, like you don't like something, that you don't want to be associated with that, maybe it's something they stand for, or maybe how they talk, or, or whatever it is, and you're just simply denying who you really are, because you're an image bearer, like there's nothing you can do about it, that's your dad, alienating God from our lives, and, and not wanting to look into why that is when you really are. And so I, I would encourage you to look into why you want to separate from who you really are. You're an image bearer. There's no way around it. And maybe it's that you don't even know if you're loved by God. Maybe you're questioning his very existence. Like you, you've just been created. You just been passing this stuff down to me it's just been passed down to me from parents or grandparents or whoever it may be but you're an image bearer and I would encourage you to look into that not everyone experiences the love of God in the same way but there are events that happen to prove his love for you 
One of them that we all have is this birth of Christ as planned by God and this death and resurrection of Christ as planned by God, that you have a home with God, that we are adopted into his family. You don't have to be distant. You can come home because Jesus closed that distance of sin and holiness, traveling through it himself in his death and resurrection and bringing that together. He experienced that distress and loneliness in the depths of this darkness to pull us back to him, to reunite us with him, the everlasting father. And so it's building, right? The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, all these pieces until we get to this prince of peace. See, people want to just jump to peace. But how do you actually negotiate peace with people if you don't have wisdom? If you don't have the power to do it? If you don't have love? Now, peace is the theme of our Advent season this year, and and I think it's the most popular wish anyone could ask for, because if you were just to interview random people, just go down the lake and say, what's one thing you wish for? I think this would be overwhelmingly the response in terms of wishes. People would wish for peace, world peace. That what's happening in Ukraine would be peaceful. That there would be peace in the Gaza with Israel. That there would be peace with Armenia and what's happening with that out there. All these different things that are happening that we would wish for world peace and in this world, it's a fantasy. Look at from World War I until now. It's just a fantasy. Because we don't even have peace in all of our homes. How are you going to wish for world peace when you can't even sit across the table with your spouse or with your kids? Like, it's a fantasy. We can't even control ourselves and what we say and what we do, let alone world powers. How can we even think that? It's fantasy. We pray for peace. But the thing is, our hope is misplaced. We're placing it on these people who are greedy, who are corrupt, who are sinful and dark and won't make the best decisions for everyone else. They make the best decisions for themselves. That our hope has to be placed on Jesus, who can execute because he is not like people of this world who lack wisdom, who lack power, who lack love to carry out peace. If we would only admit our lack of wisdom, power, and love, and look to Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, the heir of peace. I don't know why we are so dense to think we are so good. It's just proven. Look back to World War I, up until now. I don't have to argue any further, right? I mean, look at what we've done. Why do we pretend that there's even a possibility of peace when there really isn't? 
There's never been. In all of human history, there's never been. We've only made it worse. We can kill people today more quickly and efficiently than ever ha- we've ever had. Yet we think we can attain something like this. That's so big. We can't be that foolish, can we? There is only a promised peace from God through Jesus Christ. We are promised a peace that silences those accusations in our own conscience. Wouldn't it be great if the peace just started here? All that guilt, all that shame, all the stuff going on in your head that is dark, that he can give peace to. Wouldn't you just settle for that? To know the judgment of God against our sin, that that has been washed away, And what comes out of that is this desire to then live peaceably with others. And that overflow of God's peace is to view others as more important than ourselves and to use our power for service of others and not for ourselves. And the church, just like the government of the world, is guilty of not doing well with this because of why? Because we're still sinful and we're still dark and we're still greedy and corrupt. It's still a problem with us. And so Jesus Christ is the prince of peace, the heir of peace. And Isaiah writes from chapters 9 to 53, explaining how this peace can be ours. And you fast forward to Isaiah's prophecies in chapters 42, 49, 50, 52, 53. I don't have time to share all of them with you right now, but let me just share with you one. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ. Born as a child, the wonderful counselor. The wisdom for us in a world of darkness. John chapter 8 verse 12 reads this. And Jesus said this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, the son who was given, who is the mighty God, and who has the power to deliver us from bondage, said this in John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus, the reason we celebrate Christmas, who is the everlasting father and loves us to close that chasm between holiness and sin to adopt us into his family said this in John chapter 14 verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you the child Jesus as our promise of peace the prince of peace to remove all of our guilt to be reconciled with God said in John chapter 14 verse 27 Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, let them not be afraid. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that is Jesus. We've been going through the Gospel of John and all of John's statements, those I am statements of Christ, laying down what that is. Him declaring all of these four names in the Gospel of John that I just shared with you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I think it might be helpful 
to personalize this message. Personalize Isaiah chapter 9. For to me, a child is born. To me, a son is given. And the government of my life shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called my wonderful counselor, my mighty God, my everlasting father, my prince of peace. See, it's not just a gift for others. It's a gift for you. Except that you're an image bearer. You can't get away from that. You bear his image. Open the gift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you give us this promise of peace, and yet it's not conflict-free. And I think part of the tension is experiencing a non-peace in order to get this peace, but that's something that is needed to see that clearly. It's something that's needed to see clearly that we can't keep looking into ourselves that you've told us to look to you. And so God, I know that there's a lot of frustration in our world and there's a lot of impatience and we don't want to experience long suffering. We don't want to experience a patience in waiting for things that we're really frustrated with seeing how things are. But I think until we identify the real issue of our need of a savior, that we are indeed dark ourselves, that there's so much going on in ourselves that needs a peaceful resolution before we can even look at anything else. So God, I would ask that we would look deeper within ourselves, that we would be able to see more clearly what you've done for us. We need your wisdom. We need your power. We need your love. We need your peace in Jesus' name. Amen. If any of you want to participate in communion with us, um, just hold up your hands if you don't have the elements, and we will get that over to you. The child born to us comes in the flesh, comes in flesh and blood. This symbolizing the broken body of Christ. Typically on Christmas, we want to keep things a little bit more cheerful and a little bit more optimistic, but it was a very dark time. If you think about this, Herod declares that every baby be slaughtered because of his fear of losing his power, that an infanticide happened in all the region. It's a very dark time, but he came to save. And this is a symbol of his sacrifice for us in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice, proving to us that in coming in weakness and in frailty, your wisdom is greater than ours. We remember you this day and your divine plan to offer us deliverance. 
In Jesus' name, amen.